But I think it's the same really as any kind of leadership struggle, whether we're in the same room or we're not. I think it's about um, allowing each person to have their voice and express their point of view and connecting, you know, trying to allow people to see where the other person's coming from. So what's really cool about um, the definition of stress, the stress researchers say uh, stress happens when something we care about is at stake. How's it, guys? Welcome back to another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. Uh, today, I'm joined by Kathy Mann. She is the author of two books, which I think are very timelessly um, relevant right now, especially with COVID-19 and everything. Uh, but basically, she wrote two books. One's called Harnessing Stress, and the other one is Managing Burnout. And, um, you know, as business leaders, as ordinary executives, as ordinary people, you know, we're in a very, very stressful environment right now. Filled with uncertainty, it's like the only certainty is uncertainty right now. Um, and uh, I think this conversation that I have with Kathy will give you some perspective on where you're at. Um, and I also believe that um, it will also give you some practical how-to things to help you manage your cortisol levels and uh, to unlock some oxytocin. So, without further ado, into Kathy Mann. And we're live. Hey guys, welcome back to the uh, 21 days of lockdown. Uh, on the map round show, apparently. Um, yeah, the whole country is about to go into some serious lockdown mode because of this coronavirus um, situation and pandemic. Um, and um, with me on the line uh, is uh, Kathy Mann. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, Maverick. No. <laughs> That's definitely not the way we welcome you. It was like one person clapping. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> So, so Kathy, actually, we're we're not too far away from each other. It's just that we can't actually be in the same studio. So, so thanks for um, you know making the time and accommodating us on Zoom today. Um, and um, yeah, so you're an, uh, you're an author of two books. Um, one is yep. harnessing stress, and the other one is avoiding burnout. Um, and I think these are some pretty relevant uh, discussions right now. Um, yeah. And um, you were recounting to me where this all kind of began um, in terms of, um, you know, your own personal journey. So why don't you um, kick us off uh, from the beginning? Where did the spark from, um, for, you know, for these two books come from in your own personal kind of journey? Okay, well, I had a, a corporate background in IT and then I, I joined the family business wanting an opportunity to know whether I had what it took to run a business. And I worked in the business for about five years, and it was really um, not my passion. And it pretty much broke me. The, the stress of being in that business um, completely wrecked my health. So I, it triggered a, um, a complete burnout, which um, caused an autoimmune disease. So that once you have an autoimmune disease, you can't undo it. It's there for life. And it brought my health to such a standstill that it took about three years to get back to be able to work a full day. So because the health collapse was so catastrophic, I obviously, you know, you, you search for some meaning and try to understand what happened. And if this happened to me, then it's happening to other people. Mm. And how can I use this adversity to really help people? Yeah. And I suppose, so I think, yeah, yeah. Go, ahead, go ahead and you think. Yeah, I think the, the journey started with writing my book, Avoiding Burnout. So that was really a, a method of trying to understand and unpack the events that led to such a collapse, if, you know, so that I could share with others, you know, this is how my life looked. And if you see any common elements, um, you can still change the trajectory of your life and not go quite far down that rabbit hole as I did. So that was really the intention behind the first book. Mm. 
And tell, tell us a little bit more about what did your life look like and how did you land up in that, um, that kind of situation? Because I think, like, uh, from my own personal experience, especially towards the end of last year, I just, like, I hit it. I didn't have a day or, like, really any, any kind of substantial break whatsoever um, for, for the better part of a year. And uh, towards the end of last year, I could be sitting in boardrooms and just not feeling myself at all. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, like, spaced out, not really knowing what functioning, but not really, you know, it was just like a super weird position to be in. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that probably manifests in everybody else's lives in their own different ways. But what were, what were the events that kind of led up to that? Um, and, um, and walk us through, like describe your life at that low point. Um, and maybe if you could touch on some of the, what you believe in your research and your experience now, that um, people can kind of look out for as, as warning signs? Yeah, okay. So what my life looked like was that um, I went to work every day to an, an environment that was quite a negative place to be. So I inherited a lot of staff from my father. I didn't hire them. Um, and, and many of the staff were really great. But there was one particular person who was very um, negative and like, you know, the, the bad apple is sort of the rotten egg that, you know, and looking back as a leader, I should have really um, dismissed her. I should have just said, this is not going to work. But that toxicity, I kept trying to win her over and thinking eventually she'll see that I've got the vision that, you know, this company needs and eventually she'll understand where I'm coming from. And that was really a big mistake. I should have weeded out the, the rotten apple right at the core. So that was one of the big lessons. And then the kind the nature of work was very stressful. So we were responsible for 80 million rand of other people's money every month. And that kind of pressure, you know, looking after other people's revenue. So when the money came in, we were accountable for that, paying salaries of big organizations like City Power. So if you mess up, you mess up badly. And um, there's, there's quite important consequences. So I remember checking my phone like a maniac first thing in the morning, worrying about it, going to bed. If something went down, there was this whole sort of panic and phone calls and escalation and arguing with people. So that it was quite... Um, rough for a personality like mine and in in hindsight I've learned that you know I was really swimming against the current in terms of my own talents and strengths so I'm an introvert and I did all all most of my work with sales and um, trying to push the the revenue and get more business and I'm a creative person like my brain is much more structured to strategy and forward thinking and big picture and yet most of the other work I did was really about accounting and filling in forms and ticking little boxes. And so if you do that for a long period of time, you kind of swim against the current. You feel quite exhausted. You aren't really um, living your, your proper, um, you know, what, what um, Carl Jung calls it your natural lead function. So when you work with your talents and strengths, you feel energized, you feel great. But when you work against them relentlessly, um, that, that doesn't do you any good. And then, of course, I came home to young children in preschool. I had a three and a six-year-old at the time. And you don't get much of a break. You know, they follow you to the toilet and you can't really have a breather. You know, as an introvert, I kind of needed that decompression time considering the level of stress that was happening mm. um, at work. And then the final aspect, I think, was that, you know, also quite like an A-type personality. I didn't want to give up. And I was doing things like ultramarathon running, you know, pushing my body to the extreme, you know, hardly sleeping with this bad, um, bad sleeper, one of my children. 
And so I'd wake up from this broken sleep and run 10Ks and then go into this negative environment and come home and have fighting kids and rush through the evening of bathing and feeding and brushing teeth and fall into bed and then do it again and mm. do that for five years, you know. So that repeated pattern was really um, pretty harmful for my health and well-being in general. Yeah, as I yeah. would imagine for most people. Um, yeah. So, so I guess, so I think the context there is, you know, is, is quite simple, really. It's that the demands of life are, are sometimes unmanageable, um, or yeah. they, or they put us under pressure, which is the word you used, and we don't have the coping skills in order to, to effectively either harness stress or to yeah. manage our, uh, a kind of our energy. And um, and yeah. if we don't do that, then obviously we, we hit this thing called burnout, and and that's really not a great place to be. Um, and when you're there, it's quite hard to kind of bounce back. And I think, you know, broader broader conversation here is around the coronavirus. You know, a lot of my listenership yeah. are business owners. Um, you know, yeah. I believe that if you have a business still, literally today, you should be grateful because many uh, entrepreneurs literally had the light shut off. Um, because yeah. of this thing, I mean, you know, travel businesses, um, yeah. you know, events businesses, uh, retail, um, it's N and N. And, um, you know, I had the guys from Howler on here and they had a very successful event business, software business. And now I was thinking about them listening to you talk um, about their world and how quickly that whole world has shifted as well. And, you know, they were looking at global expansion and all this kind of stuff. And I imagine a lot of those plans have now been shelved. Um, my point yeah. is, is that, you know, this is life, life, life is one big struggle and then you die. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and now we've got the coronavirus and then we're in a recession. The recession started in Q4 of 2019 and, um, you know, it's get, it's only going to accelerate, you know, and once this coronavirus, you know, disappears and it will disappear at some point and people need to have faith in that. Um, that we're going to then be present or presented with a new set of problems, you know, like the, yeah. what the, the recovery phase from, from Corona and what the economic impact is going to be. And, um, and so, and so it's, it never ever ends, you know what I mean? And so we have to have the right coping skills. We have to understand the, or, uh, you know, when uh, we have to understand what to look out for in terms of the warning signs around managing our energy, our mindset, and ultimately our capacity to adapt. Because if we don't do that, then that's when, you know, we, we put ourselves in situations that aren't attainable, which is exactly what you described. It's what I yeah, described, yeah. you know, what my kind of feelings were towards. Like I didn't want to be in the business. I, I kind of lost, my, I fell out of love with it, you know. Um, and so, and so I needed to almost, I need, it's like, the universe is pushing back and going, you need to slow down. You know, it was what it was doing to you. Right. I, I imagine in the sense that it was like, you got ultra marathon and now you're doing bait. I don't know how the hell you even were thinking about that. And then running a, and then running a business like no normal person can do that yeah. without having significant support systems in place and yeah, significant yeah. And resources. I, and, I didn't. and you yeah. didn't. And most of us don't, you know, most of us don't. And that's the truth. So yeah. I think maybe if we can, uh, you know, I think that's a good um, setup for, for some, let's talk about coping mechanisms. So um, what is the premise of your two books? So Harnessing Stress and Managing Burnout, I think the titles are almost self-evident. But if you could, if you could just like peel the, the layer of the onion away for us and give us a little bit more context around, um, you know, coping skills, why they matter, and we can get into the yeah. meat and the potatoes around that. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, the first one, avoiding burnout is really, it's in two parts. And the first part is really about my story of how I got there. So people can get a real feel of, um, you know, these warning signs like you spoke about, you know, and, and um, they start to see the disinterest and how, you know, I fell out of love with the work and I just felt like, you know, this is not sustainable. So seeing that pattern and all the things that were contributing to my illness I think can hopefully show people, you know, aspects of their lives that they can resonate with. And then the second half of the book is really, the subtitle is The Seven Principles of Self-Preservation. So I'm quite a, a fairly analytical person. My, my job in IT was very much analytical. And I, I really dove deep into why this happened to me. I started to look at all aspects of my life and try to figure out, uncover all these little pockets that were wrong. So, I mean, the starting point is really principle one, that is, um, it's basically know yourself. If you are an introvert, you shouldn't really be selling all day without a break. You know, obviously, every business owner needs to do a lot of self-promotion and pushing their brand and their business. But you also need other people to leverage that. You need to, you know, have other things in place. And you also need to recover maybe from the, the social aspect if that's not really your natural way. Mm. So knowing yourself is pretty much primary um, and I didn't, I didn't, I knew who I was, but I didn't align my work to that. So that was a huge lesson for me. Mm. And then some of the other principles are also around things like, you know, if you're doing things out of obligation, you know, start to live your own life, start to focus on your own dreams and, and you know, put boundaries in place with people, get support structures in there, ask mm. for help and be specific, you know. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of what the avoiding burnout is really for. It's these principles so that you can look at your life and say, oh, boy, I've got a really unhealthy relationship. I need to sort this out. Or, oh, I'm not following my passion. I have to try and embed aspects of my strengths into my work in some way mm. to be able to thrive a little bit better. Mm. What is it? What is the modern take on today now in your view on the idea of self-preservation? Because it's, it's like, what does it mean? Like if you, if you were to categorically sum it up and qualify, what does it mean to, well, one, what is self-preservation and then why does it matter now? Because if you think about, you know, um, let me, I'll talk about myself, right? Cause I can't really talk about anybody else. So if I said to you, listen, why must I self-preserve my, my, myself when I'm responsible for 30 families? Because they come first. Do you understand? Or I could be a, a dad and I can go, well, I mean, I've got two kids at home. So they come first. So in other, in other words, like, do you understand? It's almost like it's quite a difficult thing to quantify. When should I self-preserve? And actually, when should I be selfish? Because I yeah. actually believe, like, you have to be selfish. You cannot, yes, you've got to, of course, you know, care about the 30 families. And of course, you've got to put your kids first, but not all the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, a, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's an irrational model of the world to expect everything to be idealistic and fair. You understand? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, that's the, I think the big lesson, one of the bigger lessons for me was about, um, you know, this whole concept of you can't pour from an empty cup. And I kept my whole life, I think my childhood and everything sort of geared me up to be the kind of person who is just a giver. I'm a giver. If someone says, hey, can you help with this project? I'm ne I was never going to say no. I was just that kind of person. Even in my corporate life, they'd throw another project on me and I didn't push back. I just said, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll find a way to do it, you know. And there I was at eight months pregnant, driving home from the CBD and in the dark and, and just crazy stuff when I look back now. 
But, and I didn't, and the, the, I think the, the key thing is that it's not sustainable and it doesn't serve those who depend on you. So the fascinating thing about me then getting to that point, then I spent three years when I couldn't be the kind of person I wanted to be. And that means even like from a mother, you know, I couldn't go to children's parties. I couldn't cook them a meal. I, there was so much that I couldn't do. And a three-year-old doesn't understand. When you say you've got chronic fatigue and it's going to take you three years to recover, they don't get that. They still ask you tomorrow, can you please play Lego on the floor with me? And it was really tough to be in the situation where I had to just say there's so much I can't do. And that was tough for an A-type personality who can do everything, the superwoman type person. It was awful. Mm. And, you know, I couldn't be the kind of wife I wanted to be. I couldn't support my friends. You know, I couldn't go out. And I lost so much in my sport, the goals. So I, in order to serve your customers, your clients and your staff and all the community support that you offer in whatever service or offering you provide and your family, you have to be pretty strong. Mm. And you cannot do that if you're continually putting everyone's needs above your own. There must be a little bit of a balance where you say, right now I need to fill this cup because it's going to crack. And um, and it's not pretty when it does. <laughs> I've been there. and It's really not pretty. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't reached that stage, thank God, um, just yet. But I certainly got pretty close and, and that was bad enough. Um, yeah, I think one of the things to say there is that you said you couldn't be who you wanted to be. And that's, and that's quite a big statement, right? I think a lot of people can, can resonate with that. Um, and, um, and it's one of the interesting things that I'm kind of going through at the moment is um, in my intimate relationships with family. So, um, and even with my wife to, 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 to an extent. And one of the things that, um, that I'm kind of exploring in my own world around um, the idea of self-preservation is this, the role of expectations in your, in your happiness um, in yeah. the sense that, you know, just take a marriage. You get a classical marriage and then you get a modern marriage. A classical marriage is, well, let's talk about, you know, in the relationship context. So when you fall in love with someone, it's because you're meeting each other's needs entirely. Like everything you do is to meet her needs and vice versa, right? Um, but then you get married and you get married on the base, on the idea that, well, these needs will always be met and this is why you're my soul, soulmate, quote unquote, you know? Um, and then you get married and like 10 years in, you suddenly recognize, you start to realize that, well, the needs that I were, that were being met are no longer being met. And then that, that then reciprocates in many ways. And so what happens is then you, you, you wind up in a power struggle. Right. So, well, it, you know, you're not doing, no, you're doing this. And then suddenly now you're in, in trouble as a marriage. Um, and, and it's because of the role of expectations in the dynamic of any relationship, whether you have that with your kids or your wife or your husband or your brother or your, your dad or your mom or whatever the case is. So like if you go back to the marriage example, it's like you have, um, modern expectations. So, you know, it's equality for the man and the husband and the wife and they will all do things together and you know uh, financial income will be will be the same you know you'll have sex 2.5 times a week and it'll be it'll be equal equal with the kids and that's the modern marriage now right so but the old way is like well the man makes the money and the mom must look after the after the kids primarily and the dad you know the, the 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 patriarchy will make all the decisions and they will lead you understand? So, so if yeah. you do, but what happens is 
you don't, you're not consciously aware of the expectations that you carry. So you yeah. have to actually write them down and so that you can become aware of them because when you become aware of them, suddenly it's like, oh, snap, that's actually what I expect, you know, of a partner or yeah. of my kids or whatever the case is or of a business partner even. Um, and, um, and then what we also do is we don't recognize or take the time to ask ourselves, well, if I want this expectation to be met, what action am I prepared to take in order to get that thing? Because it's like we expect it to happen, but we're not prepared to do anything for it. So what we do is we walk around with this big bag of expectations that ultimately affect our happiness. They determine to what extent I should should give, right? They determine the extent to, to which I believe I can be the person that I want to be or not, and, and, and. Um, and yeah. so it's, it's a powerful thing, but it all sits there. But the thing is we lack the self-awareness. So I wanted to kind of get into um, the next kind of phase around coping skills is how do we become self-aware of the, of the things that we are missing uh, or the things that we need in order to, to kind of create a capacity to do more or to give more or to you know, be happier or whatever the case is? What, where does one start? How do we become self-aware um, around, um, you know, managing our, our energy and things like that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can't literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, I think it's really important. I love that you spoke about expectations because I do write about that in Harnessing Stress. Uh, I, I wrote about, you know, even in, in Avoiding Burnout, I spoke about these expectations I had of my husband, but I didn't express them. And, I, and you know, you get so resentful that this other person is not delivering to your expectations, but you've never actually said it out loud. And what was remarkable about, about that is that as soon as I expressed what I wanted, to my husband to say, I need you to take the kids out for three hours on a Saturday so that I can rest. I gave him finite, clear instructions. And the moment I did, of course, he he accepted that and he did it. There's no question. But, you know, for, for maybe eight years, I've been holding on to this, oh, he never does what I <laughs> expect. The poor guy, there's no possibility of succeeding in a dynamic like that. Mm. So, so that really shifted for us. And I write about it in Harnessing Stress saying, you have to identify you know, what do you need out of life? What do you actually want? And what do you expect of others in, in your personal relationships, in your business relationships? If you've got a staff member that you're getting all frustrated about, have you sat down and had this clear conversation to say, I expect X, Y, Z of you and, and what can I do to support you? And what do you expect of me in able to, to how to enable you? 
So those having a lot of clarity around that really embeds that in a relationship and, and improves, you know, all kind of communication and the relationship as a whole. So that's really important. And, and the, I think boundaries, yeah. yeah. Boundaries, go ahead. Boundaries are really important too. So I think I, the sicker I got, the worse my boundaries were, and they weren't that great to begin with as well. I felt like a complete doormat by the end of getting sick. And I think I was quite a people pleaser to start with. I didn't want to offend people. I was a conflict avoider and I tried to make everybody happy all the time. And that's never going to happen. You, we've got to be realistic. That's also a personal expectation that I can, I can just completely make everybody happy all the time. You've got to drop that and realize that, well, actually making yourself happy is quite important. And there's some of the people are not going to accept the boundaries you put in place. And as I got well, you know, I started to get better and stronger. I started to push back a lot and say, well, actually, I can't do that now, or I'm not willing to do that, or I'm not ever going to do that. And there was a little bit of um, pushback you know, and sort of shock when I started to put those boundaries in place originally. But then people accept it. You know, if they love you and they, they care for you and they're willing to, um, you know, give a little bit as well, then the, the relationship gets a whole lot stronger when you've been clear to say, this is where, this is the, you know, mm. where it stops, the buck stops here and, that, and that's not negotiable. Yeah. But that was really yeah. valuable for me to do as well. Yeah, it's a great point. So I think just to echo again on this expectations thing. The more I think about it, it's like the, it's like the the amount of expectations that you carry are directly proportional to like the degree of your fulfillment and happiness. Almost, it's like, but it's like even a CEO. I've got like thirty odd staff here, and um, you know, I when I talked like with Maverick, just doing the show, for instance, or with Q Dog, like I have expectations, but I've never actually voiced them up until a point where they drop balls quote unquote do you know what i mean um yeah. and then it's and then but then but then even then when you when they get the hairdryer treatment you know <laughs> <laughs> they i'm not actually voicing the expectation i'm actually just reacting to the fact that my expectations weren't met so how can someone you know ever meet your expectations if you're not clear about them in the first place yeah. Right. Yeah. And you might not actually be clear in your own head. I mean, I, I remember having these arguments with my husband. You talk about the marriage stuff. And we kept banding about this term called your fair share. And I'm saying, I'm doing my fair share. You're not doing your fair share. And he's saying, but I'm doing my fair share. And then I said to him, well, what percentage of the household chores is your fair share? Like, what, what would you think? You know, that's all about. Is it 10%? And then I think we both had a bit of a light bulb moment, like, okay, it's not 50. He doesn't think his fair share is 50, you know. And, uh, and we both sort of realized that for a moment. You use these same terms and you get stuck in these same conversations. But when you actually become really explicit to say, let's make a list of the 20 things that happen in this house um, and let's, let's see or like what you can do extra that helps or what you believe that is your your role you know is mowing the lawn is not really going to be the kind of thing i want to do you know <laughs> to be realistic as feminist as i want to be um, i don't want to mow the lawn you know yeah well the thing also that came up this week is that um you know with the coronavirus i've now got to manage you know this the same business but without being able to see anyone um, and yeah. so you, you're not privy to certain conversations that happen in a department and things like this. And yeah. so some, some, it came up the grapevine, um, yesterday that some, uh, some people within the sort of creative, te- well, it wasn't even the creative team, it was the intersection between creative and operations and that there was something said that maybe shouldn't have been said. And people are like overwhelmed. They're isolated. They're feeling, 
you know, like they can't cope. Um, and, um, and it's a tough situation to be in. It would be a lot easier if you could just tap them on the shoulder. Hey, what's going on? Okay, cool. Okay. And then you can get, put it to bed. But now you don't have that. You don't really have, it's much harder to do that quickly. You can still do it, of course, but it's much harder to do that quickly. So so I think this time of isolation, we've got to be even more explicit about what we need because we aren't in each other's company and that social connection has lost a little bit. The relationship suffers just by the fact that we're not in the same room. Well, and also the thing for me, it's culture. So I've got a great business idea and I'm going to share it now. And I would really like someone to do this because right now the entire world is working from home. Okay. And the biggest thing that I, that I made, that made this business successful was its culture. Right. And so now how do you sustain a culture when people are in 30 different locations and you've got no way to, to interact with people? So I would pay somebody like a subscription of between 10 and 40,000 rand a month if you could just do uh, cultural activations for distributed workforces. Do you know what I mean? And helping helping people to manage the stress because, you know, like um, we paid our staff early uh, this week and it was because of the announcement by Cyril, our president, and uh, that's for my, uh, my international listenership, you know, it's like two days ago that literally in 36 hours from now, they're going to shut down, lock down South Africa. Like you're not going to be able to move and, and like in many other countries. Um, and so people are like panic buying and things like this. And it's like, well, I mean, it's the end of the month and how am I going to pay for things? Even, you know what I'm saying? Like even if I went to the shop, I wouldn't have money to pay for the things that I need in this panicked environment and this very stressful yeah. environment. Um, and, uh, and I've got to do my work and I'm a single mom and I've got four single moms that work for me. And so we paid everybody early and we announced it today and the reaction was like heavily, like beyond, it was, and I didn't expect it to be as emotional as it was from the staff. Um, And it just, it's just a great barometer of how hectic it is for people who are feeling isolated, who have to deliver again, because are we getting busier, which is the the irony, right? Um, For it's, it's great, but it's just, we were lucky. We just picked the right category or the right market, but sector rather. But anyway, I I wanted to get into like, how does one manage the stress between teams um, in your experience? Like, and I want you to wear the hat of a leader. So if you were in in my situation and and there was friction between teams and there was a disconnect, isolation, you know, you got a a very difficult, stressful environment outside of the business itself and then inside and and and, how does does one lead in that situation? Yeah, I think... I think as a leader, um, it's really important to show your own vulnerability that you're also stressed and, you, you know, you're also impacted by this because sometimes people feel they don't want to show that they're buckling or struggling. So I think the compassion is really important and the empathy to say, yes, we're all, you know, we're all in this situation. We're all kind of struggling with that. But I think it's the same really as any kind of leadership struggle, whether we're in the same room or we're not. I think it's about... Um, allowing each person to have their voice and express their point of view and connecting, you know, trying to allow people to see where the other person's coming from. So what's really cool about um, the definition of stress, the stress researchers say uh, stress happens when something we care about is at stake. So if you think about a conflict and you think about how the differing opinions now, for some people, for coronavirus, what's at stake for for one person is, oh, I've got an elderly relative. For me, I've got a 94-year-old grandmother. I'm quite afraid that she's going to get ill. Um, You know, I want people to stay at home and not bring illness into her home because she's very vulnerable. 
Um, but then there's other people that are saying, well, actually, those nurses and those people need the income and the, the economy needs to keep going. And, and what's at stake for them is something completely different. It's about the flow of money. And so when we understand what is at stake for each person and give them that voice to say, you know, what is happening for you? What's underneath this conflict? Um, then we start to see things from each other's point of view and we start to develop a little bit more empathy and compassion. And when we have that, then we often find that people are able to meet the other one halfway or to try to find um, collaborative solutions to meet each other's needs. But when we very, because I think what happens a lot of the time when we have this elevated stress, it, we become very polarized. You know, you've got these camps of like, I, I, I'm the rebellious people that are saying, I'm just carrying on with my life and I'm not self-isolating. And the others on social media saying, why are people not staying at home? So people become very angry and very um, right about their point of view. But when we remember that some different things are at stake for different people, um, we can then start to work on, on solutions that really support each other. Yeah. So that would really be my, you know, using stress as a definition would really be my, my take on it. Mm. So that's quite interesting. Um, and I want to kind of double down on the um, elevated um, stress situations because it's like they say you don't really know someone until you fight them. You know, it's like it's, it's you know what I mean? Like that's when true character comes out. Yeah, it's true, right? I got my team laughing here. Have you thought about that before? Um, yeah, and, um, and, and it's true, right? Because you, 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 do, you do behave differently when you are under stress. Is there a yeah. model or a framework that you've come across in your research um, or maybe in your book that, that describes the behavioral uh, changes or, or the impact of you know, elevated levels of stress on uh, behavioral changes within the workplace? And, and again, just trying to look to understand, well, how does one manage these kinds of environments moving forward? Because you know, this, this coronavirus story isn't going to go away for at least, I would say, three months to six months even, maybe yeah. longer. Yeah. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, so I'm very interested in the, um, you know, the hormones that happen when we feel stress and, and other, uh, other things that happen. So the hormone of cortisol is one of the primary ones that's released when we experience stress. So when we have elevated cortisol, what actually happens is that we become more selfish, actually, <laughs> and, and we're not as trustful. So we, we become mistrustful and selfish. And, you know, that, that obviously has an evolutionary background. So, you know, when things are, we're in danger, we feel like, okay, I need to knuckle down and protect my loved ones and my own, you know, well-being and my income. I can't be worried about other people and their stuff. I'm not going to do charity now. I'm really going to button down and look after myself and my own. And, and so when we have these elevated levels of cortisol in society now, that's what people are doing. It's sort of, um, you know, don't come to my house to endanger my family. I just want to block everyone out and, and protect myself. So it means we're less cooperative. We have lower levels of compassion um, for each other. But I think in, in trying to understand the one benefit of this, um, you know, one of the few positive sides we can see is that the coronavirus is really universal. It's one of these major... Um, world events that everybody is going to be impacted by um, in maybe even different ways, but we're all affected and we're all fighting the same thing. If we see it from a, um, you, you recognize people's common humanity by saying we're all in this together. If we can contribute and collaborate with each other, we can really ease each other's suffering instead of 
exacerbating it by being selfish and, you know, going to the stores and, and buying up every conceivable um, roll of toilet paper. <laughs> there was a funny article I read um, on BBC today, like all the, the sewage pipes are, are basically blocking up in the UK. <laughs> Because they because people are not they can't use toilet paper they have to use newspaper, so oh boy. newspaper doesn't like behave you know what I'm saying like the way that it should, <laughs> so it's like becoming a thing where it's like you know what I mean but you just didn't have to panic by they were like the world sewage sewage pipes would be fine but you had to you yeah. know what I mean not your fault. So that's what you're yeah. saying, right? <laughs> basically, yeah. right? Is that you became yeah. super selfish, you panicked, you, there was this, this ridiculous panic buying um, yeah. because somehow coronavirus just makes you run to the loo for like months. <laughs> um, toilet you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah. but, but this is a great example, right? It's about pressure, behavior change, yeah. and a negative consequence for it because as you say it, it does become um selfish and it kind of activates those negative values in all of us right um and yeah. so so i wanted to kind of understand from you how does how do we reconnect with each other then you know in a, in a human to human um uh, because yeah. and again you know i keep saying this thing but it's like we're not able to touch each other we can't like yeah. this team hugs each other high fives yeah. each other in the morning that was the environment i didn't understand why you guys do it but i know that you do it and i'm cool with that i just like to get one more hug but that's fine um yeah go on then go and hug each other but um but uh you know we're not able to connect anymore and actually we're we're kind of self-justifying to ourselves about why it's okay to be selfish well, I mean, it's yeah. it's me and my family, and you know, and we we come first, and and uh, you know, what I'm saying like, and in America, they're buying guns. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's like, scary. it's it's fucking yeah. insane. Uh, yeah, we've got scary. we've yeah. got um, you know, the the military, uh, the SNDF, the National Defense Force deployed. Look, I mean, like, it's all coming right, and it's mass hysteria, mass pandemonium, and no one really knows where where it's gonna, where it's all gonna, the chips are gonna fall, right? Um, and so, yeah. so the big question then is, well, how do you reconnect with each other? Yeah, I know it okay. seems like a very wishy washy thing, but you're the stress yeah, expert. I, yeah. How do we do that? The the science in this is really beautiful. I re, I think so. Uh, many people understand that the, the hormone of oxytocin, the love hormone, this is the one that is released there when we have physical contact. So when we, we're intimate, when we have sex and, and mother and child with breastfeeding, oxytocin from an evolutionary point of view really brings um, families together, communities, teams together. And even, you know, when you see sports teams, you know, patting each other on the back and doing the hugs and the high fives, that's also all the oxytocin is flooding through their systems. And, and why oxytocin is, is relevant for stress is that it actually brings down cortisol levels. And when you have more oxytocin flooding in your body, we raise things like serotonin, which makes us in a good mood and more, you know, it opens us up to trust. We start to be more loving and courageous and helping, supporting each other. So we actually need oxytocin to collaborate. And you know, we get it from hugs and that. So now we're all sort of unable to get that, that rush of it. But my recommendation would be that it also comes in other ways. So you can get a flood of oxytocin if you have quite a meaningful conversation with other people. So, I mean, I noticed that now, I think it's just the circles I'm moving, but in the last three days, I've been invited to three separate Facebook communities that are about sharing love and sending out kindness and compassion. Like, How can we show acts of kindness in this time? How can we boost 
um, that. And so when you, when you witness an act of kindness, you also get a flood of it. So it's almost um, overloading yourself on witnessing acts of kindness, trying to expose yourself to that. And what I've been doing in my, my own personal life, I'm reaching out to, you know, my brothers, are re, we don't connect very often in person, but I'm sending now WhatsApps to say, how are you holding up? Are you guys okay? You know, connecting with friends that live in other cities that I haven't seen in a while. I'm just trying to touch base with the people I care about to be able to lift my own oxytocin and theirs. So, you know, when you, and also when you have a meaningful chat to someone to say, gee, I really, I'm so stressed. I had such a meltdown yesterday. I sat in my pajamas all day. You know, that kind of um, vulnerability, um, it does breed oxytocin. And of course, in the other two ways, so in my personal household, I've got two little girls and my husband. So I'm making sure I give them all lots of hugs so that we share that oxytocin because the kids are also feeling, you know, stressed at the time. And the final way is that our animals, so pets, when you stroke the fur of an animal, it releases oxytocin into your system. So if you sit with your cat on your lap and you pat them or you have fun with your dog in the garden, you are getting a dose of it. And I think this is a time when the world needs lots of oxytocin. We need to flood our bodies full of it so that we can not buy every toilet roll in our vicinity and start to offer a bit of love and support to the people in our communities that need it. Mm -hmm. And um, is there an injection you can take of oxytocin? What about a pill? <laughs> when the researchers do experiments on this, you sniff it basically. There's a little vial, Amazing. and then people sniff it. <laughs> so you can you can snort it, but I don't know where you would get it from. <laughs> but you can get it. Is what you're saying? <laughs> Does anyone have a dealer? Oxytocin dealer. <laughs> we should get into. We're pivoting. We're launching a pharmaceutical brand called uh, yeah. Oxy Kung Fu. <laughs> okay, cop fuse. There's a different kind of oxy, and it's not the same. Is it not the same? <laughs> it's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, you know, um, but you know, but I don't know. I, 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 what about other things that are more practical? So let's just say, like, Sonal here was <laughs> like, yeah. no, no, but no. I was going to get to like the nuances here because you know, Sonal's like, yeah, but I don't have pets and I don't have kids, and you know, so okay. she lives in her, like she, as an example, she could live on her own, and uh, you know, she doesn't have act. Now she's literally, it's weird, right? If you think about it, it's like in the in the in the prisons, they what they they put you in the hole if you step out of line, so you you're on your own. Yeah. And now you're on your own, and many people are literally on their own. Yeah. Um, some yeah. obviously, you know, have mar- are married, kids, whatever the case is, but oftentimes you're on your own. Um, and yeah. so, so you don't have access to that kind of thing. I mean, are there other, like, what about meditation or something yeah. that you can do on your own and it doesn't require something else other than you and time? Is, you know, walk us through what yeah. some of the options there could be. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of feeling good in that, um, so there's, there's our autonomic nervous system has two main parts. Um, so if you think about um, the, the, sympathetic nervous system is like the accelerator so if you imagine that when you push down that accelerator you get that rev and that's when we have a fight or flight response we feel like you know we're pumped and we're ready for action on the other side the other branch is the parasympathetic nervous system and that is the one that calms us down that's the break to say whoa like slow down and actually life is not dangerous we're actually okay and we can rest and the way we stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system is a, there's a couple of ways we can do that. It's almost like a, a physiological hack that we can do that. 
And how we do that is by um, massaging the vagus nerve. It's, it's called vagus is from the Latin term wandering because it actually goes from the skull through the larynx and voice box, heart and lungs, liver, spleen, reproductive organs, all the way down our torso. So it's really the longest set of nerves in the body. And there are a couple of ways that we can um, stimulate that. And in stimulating it, we, we calm ourselves down and we feel like we're coping. So the first way is exercise. So I think there's been some, some um, vague statements from the Minister of Health that's saying it shouldn't be a problem to go outside and exercise. So we're allowed to walk and run outside our gates and do something physical like that. If you don't want to leave your house, there's a lot of YouTube videos where you could do a, a yoga class or Pilates or whatever else physical things you can do that is possible. And, and that's simulating that vagus nerve because your heart and lungs are connected and that's, that's getting you that kick of happiness. Everybody knows that exercise releases endorphins and, and you feel better. Meditation is another way. So when you meditate, you kind of calm down the whole nervous system and bring yourself into this beautiful state of calm. So that's a really good one. I personally, I just do things like a 10-minute video on, on YouTube because I find at the moment uh, trying to empty my mind is just too much because there's a lot of chatter and worry about what's going on. So I'm finding if I listen to somebody else's instructions about, you know, imagining a forest and that it's easier than trying to just think about nothing because I'm really battling with that at the moment. Mm. And then, um, yeah, other things that are really cool I learned about is that if you vocalize, so of course, because the vagus nerve goes through our larynx, we, when you sing, chant, hum or laugh, it really calms down the nervous system. So that's why, you know, a lot of yoga classes start with chanting and humming. And when, you you know, you might feel like if you've ever been to a church service, a funeral or something like that, and you sing along with everyone, you actually feel really good um, afterwards. And that's why you're getting that, that boost of that. Um, and then the other one was, um, yeah, the physical touch and that that we've spoken about already, the oxytocin boosts. Yeah, so those are kind of the, the tips and hacks that I can um, uh, suggest from the research I've come across. Cool. What's that scene with Matthew McConaughey uh, in The Wolf of Wall Street? And he starts, mm, he's like hitting his chest. Mm. <laughs> I do that sometimes. I think that's quite cool. I like to think I'm the Wolf of Wall Street in my, in my, in my fantasy world. No? <laughs> so now I was like, no, you're not. See, this is why I pay them. <laughs> Tell me the truth. <laughs> The other one was the deep breathing. Yeah, that's that's also a really good one to do. So if you take a lot of deep breaths, you um, exercise also heart and lungs, and that that really calms down the nervous system very quickly. So that was sorry, I forgot that one. That I know, one. shame on you, shame on you, damn it. Um, but uh, have you heard about um, the 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 Wim Hof Wim Hof the Hof method? Nope. What? Oh my god, I'm going to change your life right now. Um, so that last point you made about the deep breathing, that's pretty much his thing. So, so basically it's a free app. I highly recommend that everybody go and download the thing. It's called uh, the Wim Hof method and, uh, you download it. I'm actually going to get it from my phone, you know, and, um, this guy's a Dutch dude. He's breaking all sorts of records, um, for, um, breathing in nice oxymeter ridge. I'm not signing in again, but anyway. But um, but basically, this guy's broken all sorts of records. He's climbed Mount uh, Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest in his shorts. I'm serious. Wow. He's like, he's wow. called the Iceman. He, um, he literally like lives in the cold. Um, and so it's all about breathing. Because imagine if you jumped into 
like an ice bath right now, your breathing would be like <laughs> like that. And he, yeah. and so that's kind of where it started. But the idea is that you, you kind of control your breathing and it's for, you take 30 to 40 breaths fully in and then slowly out. Not like slow, slow out, but like you're breathing normally, you make it cyclical. But the idea is that you're pumping your, your body full of oxygen, it's charging up. And, um, yeah. and then what you do is you take one deep breath in and then you hold your breath and you time it. And on the app, you've got a, an, a thing that you can time. And so if you, take, if you think about like the average person, like Mav, how long could you hold your breath for? If I, like right now, how long? A minute. And then Sanal, how about you? How long could you hold your breath for? Really? What about you? How long could you hold your breath for? Kathy? Me? Yeah. Oh, golly. Um, yeah, I don't know. Probably a minute max. Minute max. Yeah. So I get three yeah. minutes. Wow. Regularly, over three minutes um, because of this breathing exercise. And the idea is that you can actually, so to your point, when your body's, let's just say um, like we do CrossFit here or we used to until this coronavirus bullshit. But um, but basically when, when your body is, when you exercise, you'll know this through your training, you get lactic acid in your body. And also when you're stressed, your body produces acid. Um, and so the idea is if you have a way to reduce the acid and, and literally transform your body through those two systems that you mentioned um, from, from acidic to alkaline, you're able to, to one, auto boost your immune system, control the adrenal function and like all these kind of things. They've done all sorts of tests on him. They actually injected him with this virus, like I shit you not, in Spain. They injected him with this virus and they had injected, I think, 65 other patients and uh, who exhibited the, the good health and this kind of stuff and all of them were like puking and like just really went south sweating bullets like really bad he pitches up there they inject him and he's just breathing doing his breathing and he's and nothing happens like nothing yeah. then they said to him well could you bring other people with um, and because if it's replicable, then you know that you're onto something. And he brings like, you know, um, whatever it was, like 20 people there and they all inject them and not one gets sick through this virus. And it's because we don't know what we can control around our health, actually, you know. Yeah. So if you can do this yeah. Wim Hof method s- stuff, I highly recommend giving it a shot. It's, it's truly, truly yeah. mind-blowing. Um, so, Kathy, cool. um, I wanted to kind of, um, kind of wrap this up. But, um, you know, if you were to get into a time machine and go back to yourself when you were having this kind of, you know, breakdown, uh, or maybe even if you could go back to yourself when you were even younger, 21 years old or whatever, what advice would you give yourself about life in the context of harnessing stress, managing burnout? What advice would you give to yourself? I think the most important thing would be the balance of my needs with other people's. I think I got too far um, out of alignment with trying to please everybody else and lost sight completely of what I wanted and needed out of life. So if I could give myself the advice of making sure that life is actually going the way I want and I'm getting to do work that I like and I'm getting what I need out of life, um, I would have, um, you know, if you have a balance in those scales, um, life would have ended up a whole lot easier and I would have hopefully avoided um, what happened. Mm. Um, so that would probably be it. Okay. And uh, why do you do all of this stuff? I mean, what is, what is your hope? What is your highest motivation around, um, you know, the work that you do? 
Yeah, I think if I'd known what I know about stress um, before it happened, I think I, I would have been in a completely different state. I think um, I let stress engulf me so much and um, I lost a tremendous amount through the experience. So it is really my quest in life to help others not have those losses. Um, I know from post-traumatic growth that we all become better when we go through adversity, but I don't think everybody has to have three years of um, suffering and no income and no sports and things like that. I don't think everybody has to do that. I think I, I feel like I did that so that I can bring knowledge and experience to others to say, well, these are the ways if you view stress in these ways and you learn about the amazing stress responses in the body and you harness it and galvanize yourself um, and your own physiology, you almost start collaborating with your body instead of fighting it. Mm. Um, I think that's really the big lesson that I bring to my clients to try and move them to a place of appreciation for what their bodies are doing for them instead of fighting it and avoiding it and, and hiding from stress. Um, that would be a summary of it, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting that that stress is necessary. Oh yeah, it's it's. There's so many beautiful stress responses that help us um, do all sorts of things, learn from our mistakes, connect deeply with others, and meet deadlines. You know, you've all felt that push, and that's a really specific stress response that's highly beneficial for you, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, Kathy, where can we find more information about you, your work that you do? Where can we go? Okay, so my website is um, www.kathyman.coza with a K and two N's. Um, so then my speaking is there. And then on Facebook, I have a page and I have a private group that educates people on how to learn how to uh, switch their thinking um, in terms of um, moving to a positive um, way of stress. Mm -hmm. So those are my main channels, really. Where yeah. can we get your book or your books? Yeah, they are available on Amazon, both of them, you know, obviously at the moment in South Africa, it's easier to get a, a Kindle version, but um, they are in all the good bookstores in South Africa once it's um, once we're online again and um, in other nations, of course, um, in paperback or um, ebook version on Amazon. Great stuff. Kathy Mann, thanks so much for your time. It's been great to chat to you. Thanks so much. It was wonderful. Much better. The audience grew. Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, you're in a game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.